and to remember the power that there is in his death <coughs> at the cross and uh, also in his resurrection and his ascension to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. And I'm actually going to be speaking about work today. You know me, I can't help it, but last, last week our discussion point focused on the purpose of Sunday is Monday, and we had a look at how God intends us to actually be connected with our Monday world, and our Sunday experience should actually build us up and equip us for the works of service that God has assigned to us in whatever our Monday context is, which may be paid employment, it might be some kind of voluntary work. Uh, for Jeanette, it was a stay-at-home mum between around about the time we were married until the girls were married. And right at the end of our discussion today, I'm actually going to give you a definition of work. And um, if I had my wallet with me, I'd probably pull out $50 and lay it on the table because I can just about guarantee that you would never have heard of a definition of work like this before because most definitions of work are actually developed in the context of paid employment, but God actually sees work as a much more embracing concept than that. But what I want to do, first of all, is to show you a little video. Work. Most of us spend over half our lives at work. Whatever it is you fill the 9 to 5 with, planting crops, building cars, taking care of patients, teaching students, or running a business, work is where most of life happens. For some, work is a drain. They dread Monday mornings, forcing themselves to struggle through because they need the paycheck, while many times feeling trapped and beaten down by their job. Some people love their work. They're good at what they do. It energizes them. It's a place of security, a place to chase dreams, desires, and success. At work, they find fulfillment. We often forget to connect our faith to our work. We don't consider the reasons God may have us at our job. We don't think about the purpose and meaning we could bring to our work. We simply focus on how it makes us feel. But what if we saw our work as an opportunity to worship? As Christians, we are called to serve Christ with our lives. For a few, that means working as a pastor, a youth minister, or a missionary. Others serve the church by teaching children or singing in the choir. But when Sunday is over, most of us return to our jobs outside the church. For us, our mission is in the marketplace. We may not be the kind of missionary who moves to the far regions of Africa, but around the conference table, around the water cooler, around the cubicle, we have an opportunity to worship the God who created us. He gave us skill. He gave us passion. He gave us work. When we do our jobs with excellence and integrity and diligence, it's an act of worship. We are displaying God's craftsmanship to the non-believing world around us. We are earning the right to be heard. We don't see a divide between Sunday and Monday, between the sacred and the secular. We've been invited into parts of the world that a pastor or traditional missionary will never see. We have conversations with people who would never set foot in the church. Whether we love or dread our work, we choose to turn the focus away from ourselves and toward the mission God has for us. Church is not the only place we worship, and Sundays are not the only days in our calendars that have meaning. Every day on mission for God brings us great joy. 
Like the heroes before us, we can be modern-day Noahs and Josephs and Peters who are called with a purpose. God has designed us. He created us to work and to worship. For us, work is worship. finish on that that theme of work as worship when we get a little bit further down the track in our discussion point today. Just heaving a sigh of relief that that work for technology hasn't been as kind to me this weekend as it has been in the past, but anyway, um, we're doing quite well so far. My theme today is, is work, yes, work as worship. But I can actually sum up God's attitude to work in four words. First, God ordained work or ordains it. God sustains it. God inspires it. And God requires it. Just four words. Ordains, sustains, inspires, and requires. And I've actually preached on this elsewhere before. And it's actually changed people's lives. I teach it as well. Every one of my students in business gets this lesson either in their first year as undergraduate students or in their first semester as postgraduate students because we can't really understand business unless we understand God's attitude towards work and we can't understand our full life if we don't also understand God's perspective on work so let's first have a look at the idea that work is actually ordained by God. In other words, we can blame God for the fact that we work. And you know me also, I'm always going back to Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3 because I actually think that's the foundation for our whole life as, as a Christian. But Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28 and Genesis 1 verse 28 in particular focus on the fact that it was God's idea that we work. You might recall that when God created men and women, the very first words that they heard from the lips of God were words of blessing. Because Genesis simply says, and he blessed them. And then it goes on to outline that blessing. And part of that blessing was to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion. And I guess you know that in many kind of romantic Sunday school classes, we would have learned that multiplying and filling the earth is all about having a lot of babies and populating the earth. And yes, that's part of it. But it was a lot more than that. The Garden of Eden only covered a small proportion of the earth. And of course, Adam and Eve were just two people to start with. And God's desire was that Eden would spread to cover the whole of the earth, that the whole of the earth would be filled with people like God because we're made in His image, and that actually required work. That's why God actually commanded Adam and Eve to subdue the earth. And it wasn't really about beating down the earth, but it was about actually controlling the rapid growth of everything on earth. And I used that illustration a few weeks ago, I think. If ever you've grown 
plants on virgin soil, you'll know that they grow crazy and that you've actually got to prune them. You've got to subdue them. And that's what Eden was like, in my view. It's as if, you know, Adam and Eve kind of had to tuck into their fig leaf somehow, a pruning saw and secateurs, and that a lot of their work actually consisted of subduing the vigour of what was growing in the garden. And I actually think that's, that's the meaning of subdue. And to, to have dominion, again, it's not so much that pioneering thing where you clear all the land of every piece of vegetation and, and plant new crops, but it really is about having control over our situation. God delegated to us royal authority way back there. And you know what? When you're delegated authority, that means work. So God intended that our work would actually be part of the blessing that he bestowed upon us right back there in Genesis. And of course, in Genesis 2, we see that God put humankind in the garden and said it is your job to tend or to cultivate and to keep it. And the words that I've got in italics there, I've put there because they're the words that directly relate to work. Tending the garden, cultivating the garden, of course, was work. And as many people before me have pointed out, this all happened before the fall. So work was never meant by God as a punishment for sin. Although it's very easy for us to get that impression because after Adam and Eve sinned, God did say he was going to make work a lot more difficult and that there'd be pain in childbirth for the woman and that the man uh, would gain fruit from the land by the sweat of his brow. And I actually think that particular curse, if you like, was lifted after, after Noah, after the flood, um, because God actually promises to Noah after Noah made sacrifices to God, never again will I curse the land because of man. So I personally don't think the land is cursed today, but I'm pretty certain that about 98% of theologians wouldn't agree with me. But I actually reckon that that little passage about Noah is really very significant. So work is ordained by God. It was his idea. And so work is intended by God to be something that blesses us. Well, let's have a little look now at the idea that God sustains work. See, God is not a mean God. If God ordained work, then God is actually going to give us the capacity to do it. And I just love this passage. Oh man, I could preach on Deuteronomy 28 all day. I love it. I absolutely love it. I just have to grab my Bible because I actually want to read the whole passage. Um, I, I think this is one of the most significant passages, pa passages? Try passages in the whole of the Word of God. And I want to read it and then I want to just talk a little bit about it for a moment or two. So, oh look, I'm in the book of Numbers there. That's not going to help me very much, is it? I'm, I'm looking at it. I don't, I don't really realise that. Just, um, and I haven't got my glasses on, so you'll pardon me if I, I hold the Bible a long way from my, my eyes. So as you know, um, Deuteronomy chapter 28, is, it's often referred to as the, the, the um, chapter of blessings and curses. 
And of course, in Old Testament times, Israel was assured that if they followed all of the, the Lord's commandments, then a whole range of blessings would attend them. On the other hand, if they were disobedient, then they would open themselves up to a whole range of curses. But I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 28, verse, um, verse 8. Actually, I might go back a little bit earlier than that. I'm going to read from verse 2, if you'll just put up with me, reading for a little bit longer. And um, God has said, if you obey all my commandments, then here's the list of blessings that will attend you. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. This is verse 9. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body. And that's work. The fruit of your body is work. Sorry, the, the, um, what you're doing with your body is work. In the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your ground, in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you, the Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain in your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. So you know what? God has actually taken responsibility for sustaining our work. And I want to make it plain that it's not about us obeying the law. As a Pentecostal, I firmly believe that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets and we access the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 through our faith in what Jesus Christ achieved by his death on the cross and by his resurrection and ascension to heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, the hand of blessing, and we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He intercedes for us. So it's not a matter of us slavishly obeying some laws or being good people. What it is about is us actually believing that when Jesus Christ said from the cross, it is finished, that it was. And that his victory on our behalf gives us access to those blessings in Deuteronomy 28. So simply because we are followers of Jesus Christ, we have the right to, 
to receive the rain in season that makes our crops grow and that is a blessing to the work of our hands. And of course that metaphor there was written specifically for an agrarian culture which existed at the time. But if we translate that into our contemporary times, it applies to whatever the work is that God has assigned to us. Be that paid employment, be that looking after family at home. It might be writing tomorrow. And you've got a, a tremendous gift of writing. I, I've read Tamara's blogs sometimes and she clearly is. A lot, a lot of people can, can write well, but there are some people who are really gifted in that area. And I believe that's a really special gifting that God has placed in, in Tamara. And we can see that in everybody if we look hard enough. That, that God has given to people specific giftings or talents, if you like, that he will use as he calls them to specific work in his kingdom for his purposes. So work is ordained by God and it is sustained by God. Work is also inspired by God. And this is another one of those passages. I love this passage. I can remember the morning that I, that I stumbled upon this and suddenly realised that here's God's promise to actually inspire us in our work. And again, I want to read the whole of this passage. It's from uh, Isaiah. Isaiah 28. So we've gone from Deuteronomy 28 to Isaiah 28. I will read uh, the whole of this, but there's one verse in particular which is really important, but you need the context of it to understand it. So reading from verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the ploughman keep uh, ploughing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has levelled his surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place and the uh, spelt in its place. For he instructs him in right judgment, his God teaches him. And it goes on. God instructs the farmer. God teaches the farmer. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin. But the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground. Therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheels or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. There it is. God will inspire your work because he will instruct you in right judgment that he's making the right decisions or the right choices in the context of your work, whatever it is, God will actually teach you. God will actually teach you. God, through the Holy Spirit, will actually impart to you that which you need to know in order to carry out your work. Now, that isn't meant to imply that you don't need to go to university and study under someone like me, right? Um, I would suggest that if you want to become an engineer, do what David did and allocate some years of his life 
to learn how to become an engineer through obtaining a university degree or whatever other qualification is relevant to help you be equipped with skills. But you know, God will come in over and above that and he will give you something special by way of wisdom and teaching. I know when I first became a senior manager in a university, I didn't know all that much about leadership. I hadn't read the books. I now teach leadership and write about leadership. But back then I didn't know too much. And I prayed and I said, God, just give me the manual on good leadership. And I fully expected that he'd kind of download the whole thing, you know, like shove a USB in my ear, and all of a sudden my head would be full of it. But actually God just gave me two words. Clearly, he spoke to me and he said, compassion and wisdom. That's all he said. And so I used to review my interactions with people at the end of most days, and I'd ask myself the question, have I dealt with everyone with whom I've had contact today with compassion, and in every decision I made, did I actually apply wisdom? Now, of course, the answer wasn't always yes. I don't have bad hair days, because I haven't got much hair to have bad hair days with. But let me tell you, some of my days aren't as good as others. So I was never actually able to honestly answer yes every day. But I know that it made an impact because those, those words stuck with me in every interaction I had with anybody. And um, after I, I left that particular role, you know, people came up to me and, and they said how blessed they were because of the way in which I actually managed them. I had about 220 staff at the time and 11,000 students, so it was a fairly um, big, big job. I know a lot more about uh, leadership now. I understand much more about influence and empowerment and, uh, and so on. But, you know, God instructed me in right judgment. God taught me his wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. I remember uh, one of the people I worked with very closely, she said to me, I, I used to wonder what you were doing when you'd sit in a meeting and you'd just cock your head for a few seconds. And then you'd have the answer. And I never had a problem in finding a solution to any of the issues that people brought to me. And I wasn't really even aware of it, but I used to kind of take that stance. I was just listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I would get God's wisdom. And you know what? He's not just doing that for me. When he's doing that for me, that doesn't mean he's too busy to do it for you or indeed for anybody else who's actually open to his impartation. So God ordains work, God sustains work, God inspires your work. Now this is the hard one. It's required by God. I actually think, and this is one of the, the hard lessons, you know, a lot of people don't want to preach on this because, you know, our churches are actually filled with people who for whatever reason are not actually engaged in work. And um, obviously we don't want to condemn people and that's why it's really important, I think, to define what we mean by work and I'll do that very shortly. But sadly, I see a lot of people, even in the church today, who actually don't have aspirations and I see a lot of young men in particular who are satisfied to go clubbing and to just work in part-time casual jobs and I think, what on earth have you got to offer 
to a young woman? What on earth have you got to offer to children in the future if you're not prepared now to roll up your sleeves and invest in yourself and your future family? And I actually think that those of us who hold leadership roles in the body of Christ, we need to be encouraging young people to invest in themselves and, and to aspire to much more than poorly paid, um, part-time, casual jobs. And I know, because I'm an economist, and economists know nearly everything, I know how important education is. It frees people from poverty. And even in Australia today, people who have a university degree earn nearly one-third more over their lifetime than people who don't. Then, now, that doesn't mean if you don't have a university degree, you can't aspire to earning more money because actually through wisdom you can build a wealth portfolio that will exceed that of most people who have university degrees. Because, you know, God has ways of blessing us regardless of what our status is. But we've actually got to make the choice that we're going to apply ourselves in the kingdom. We go back to the uh, commandments. We see... You know, God said six days you shall labour, the seventh you shall take rest. So um, sometimes we focus on the rest, and it's a good thing, we need to rest. But God is saying six days, six days you will labour. I laboured yesterday, let me tell you, I stood up nearly all day from a quarter past seven until a quarter past five, handing out how the boat. Um, leaflets in uh, our local electorate here. It's interesting, I was looking at the Australian Electoral Commission's website just this morning and they've lumped together a number of political parties and they call them Christian parties and at that time they got about 3.8% of the national vote. Now that's about the proportion of the population who will be in church this morning too by the way. It's a very low, very low percentage of people who are committed to being in church on a, on a regular basis, um, there's a lot more than that, about 17 or 18% who go to church at least once a month. But relatively speaking, fewer than 5% of people are being in church on any one, one Sunday. And it doesn't surprise me that people aren't that interested in voting for those parties which espouse um, Christian underpinnings in all of their, all of their policies. But um, yeah, I stood up. I worked all day yesterday and I didn't actually feel too much like getting out of bed this morning. And I might have like a half rest day this afternoon. Maybe lying flat out on my bed. But anyway, God's, God's design for our, our whole economic and social system is, is built around work and rest. Work and rest. There's a rhythm there. Six days, work, one day, rest. So you might think, should I have paid employment six days of the week? Not by any means. Because work, as I've laboured already, is not just about being in paid employment. I think there are a couple of passages in the New Testament um, that, that really specify how important it is in God's view that we work. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, we read, If anyone will not work... Neither shall he eat. That's pretty strong, isn't it? That's pretty strong. Because that's saying if you're not prepared to work, don't expect any kind of social welfare. 
There's one that's even stronger in 1 Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy, you know, makes a lot of very, very strong statements about uh, God's desires for us in terms of how we behave and the attitudes that we carry. But listen to this. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Some translations say worse than an infidel. So what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy is, you better work because work has eternal consequences. That's implied when he says you've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. That implies to me that there is um, eternal value in work. There are eternal consequences attached to our attitude towards work. This is not to say we're meant to be alcoholics, but you see, God's design for families and for society is that we would provide our own sustenance through, through work. So work is ordained by God. It is sustained by God. It is inspired by God. But the hard lesson is it's also required by God. I want to turn now to the big question of why. Why did God ordain work? Why does God bother to sustain it? Why does God himself expend effort in inspiring our work? And why does God actually require us to work? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that God works. And we, being made in his image, express that imageness in God, or the so-called imago Dei, at least in part, by work. It's not the only thing that matters. I keep stressing this because we're meant to be fully rounded. Well, I'm a fully rounded person. Um, <laughs> we're meant to be fully fulfilled, I should well, I'm fulfilled as well, I think. <laughs> but you see, God works. And, and I know that if you go back long enough, and I'm sure David will touch on this uh, when he speaks next or, or in the next few months when he deals with the history of the church, but some, some early church um, thinkers and teachers had this idea that God, he worked at creation and then just sat back. And now watches everything unfold. Um, we call people who believe that that core idea deist. So they believe in God, but God stopped working in Genesis. And that he now sits back and just basically looks and observes all the messes we make as we try to live our lives. But thankfully, most of the church don't believe that. Most of the church have long since rejected that idea. And we actually believe in a God who works. How do you think the universe remains in place? Right? God is at work. How do you think healing happens in our own bodies and in our own souls? God is at work. How do you think miracles of many kinds happen? God is at work. See, God didn't cease from his work forever. God ceased and rested. There's the pattern. Work and rest. Work and rest. Night and day. Night and day. Season after season after season. There's a pattern 
but God is at work all the time. So what is work? Here's a definition of work, and this is where I should have had $50 on the table because I guarantee you would never have heard of a definition like this before. But this, this is my, this is the Rodson Hill definition of work. It's the application of, perhaps I should add the word diligent there, the diligent application of all the capacities God has given us to produce something of value to ourselves or to others. Money doesn't hinder it. You see, we don't have to have paid employment in order to engage in godly work. We apply the capacities that God has placed in us to produce something of value either for ourselves or for others. So if I was a painter, for example, I might actually simply paint because it brings pleasure to me. And I might not even show anybody my paintings. Do you know what? That's work as far as God is concerned. If I paint though, because I'm going to hang my paintings in a gallery, a friend of ours in New Zealand, she actually put up a painting on Facebook um, early last week, but she paints absolutely beautifully. And uh, that painting was for sale for $300, New Zealand dollars I'm guessing, and it sold within about um, three days. Well, no one would have parted with that $300 unless they actually believed that that painting was going to deliver something of value to them, the pleasure of having it hang on the wall in one of their, their rooms. That's work as far as God is concerned. When, when, when Trevor is building fences, I mean, everybody would see that as work, hard work some days, out in the elements, but that's producing something of value uh, to people. Even what I do, teaching business to um, university level students, that's work because I'm actually using the capacities that God has placed in me to produce something, at least that I hope, is of value to the students who are not playing on Facebook or asleep in the back row, but something that is of value to them because they want to graduate and go on and be engaged in business at some time. The capacities that God gives us actually cover a full range. They're physical, they're mental, they're emotional, they're spiritual, and also they're financial, although I haven't got that um, in the list. Those actually cover the whole of us as created beings, don't they? So we can invest all of those capacities at, uh, to various degrees into the work that God has assigned us. There's another element of work which I think is also really important. And when we have this attitude, it can actually change the whole way we relate to our work, to our workplace and to the people around us. You see, work can be seen as an altar on which we actually bring all of those capacities that God has placed in us and commit to using those for his glory and to bless other people and to bless ourselves. So our work is something that we can use to express the greatest commandments. Remember, love God, love your neighbour as you love yourself. If we bring all of our capacities and treat work as an altar, we're expressing our love for God and as we do our best to deliver 
a good experience or a safe product or a, a value product uh, to people who are customers, we're actually expressing neighbour love. So work can be seen as a kind of altar. And my final point is this. There's a Hebrew word, avadah, that's the transliteration. I've got no idea how to actually write it in Hebrew. Avadah, it occurs numerous times in the Bible, but it actually means work, worship and service. And that little video that we had at the beginning of our discussion point today is actually put up by a ministry called Work as Worship. And the idea behind that is that this ministry, they want to teach people the idea that in doing your work, you actually are bringing um, glory to God, and that is a form of worship. So the Hebrews, they would have understood the seamlessness between work, worship, and service. Work, creating things of value to ourselves or to, to somebody else. Um, worship, giving glory to God, and our service, serving both Him and, and others. So the word Abadar, it appears first, I believe, in um, Genesis 2, verse 15, the idea that um, humankind was placed in that garden to tend it, to cultivate it, to, to expand it, to develop it. That's the first use of Abadar. And then it's used many, many times throughout the Old Testament and it's variously translated as work or as worship and I think occasionally as service. So there you have it. The whole reason why God ordains, sustains, inspires and requires work is that in working we express our imageness in God or to use the Latin term, our imago Dei. Work also engages all of the capacities that God has placed in us in order to create something of value to ourselves and or to others. And work is a form of worship. So how about that? Did you learn something new today? Do I get to keep my $50? Yeah. Yeah. I did that in church once and I, I did so, I actually lost my $50. Because I, I, I said, look, I guarantee you, you, know, you would never have heard of this before and someone put up their hand and I had to give him my $50. But that was okay because he went and spent it all buying coffee for everybody. So <laughs> anyway, that was pretty good. So look, I don't have anything else to, to say. I, I just encourage you guys, just think about God's perspective on work. Don't let anybody talk you into believing the only work that has value is paid work. There are so many other forms of work that bring glory to God and that create something of value to yourself or to others. And for people like Tamara, don't give up on your writing ever. Well, folks, why don't we join in for some time of community now? I've done a lot of talking. I'm thirsty. I'm also hungry because I didn't get up early enough this morning to have breakfast. So let's just join together and enjoy this time. Yeah.